Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 692 with Todd Curver. There is no one discipline or one segment of the company that takes precedence over another. It is truly about everybody plays an equal and important role. The business would not survive if you pulled any of the legs out from under the stool. Um, and so to prioritize or to suggest a, one discipline is more important than another is just not, it's not accurate. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Everybody loves payday, am I right? But loving your payroll provider, that's a different story. It's a little weird. Still, small businesses across the country love running payroll with Gusto. Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, and you can add benefits and HR support to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal, it's modern, and who knows, you might even fall in love. To learn more, head over to gusto.com slash unstoppable and when you run your first payroll you'll get your first three months free again that's gusto.com slash unstoppable ladies and gents you've got to own your presence online because that's where your first impressions are made good thing there is bento box because bento box empowers restaurants to own their presence profits and relationships directly through their websites to learn more about bento box and how it can empower you through your website, head over to getbento.com slash unstoppable. And because you are a restaurant unstoppable listeners, you'll save 50% off your setup fee. Again, that's getbento.com slash unstoppable. Margin Edge. It is the only restaurant management system to combine automatic invoice processing with POS and accounting integration, improving financial performance, visibility, and efficiency. In other words, with Margin Edge, you can finally run your restaurant without the massive paperwork nightmare. That sounds amazing. And all you have to do is snap a photo of the invoice with your smartphone. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you can enjoy up to 50% off your first year. Go to me.marginedge.com slash unstoppable. Yo, what's going on, Unstoppables? I have a great episode for you today. But before I give you a teaser of what to expect, I need to let you know or remind you to please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Head over to the show notes. This is episode 692 or just scroll down. If you're listening on iTunes on your iTunes player right on your phone, just scroll down. I'll have a link to the YouTube channel. Get over there, subscribe and support the show. Even if you don't want to watch it, just subscribe, help us out. And uh, also join that Facebook group. We got people joining every day, two to three people joining every day. Uh, Rest. You have to be a restaurant owner and operator to join this group. I want. It might not be the biggest group out there, but it's going to be the most curated. That's going to be my goal. And then, um, lastly, uh, keep those five star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming or wherever you're listening. Those reviews really help the show stay at the top. 
And with all these new restaurant podcasts coming out, I want to hold in that spot. So the more reviews you leave, the better uh, chances I have of holding down that number one spot on iTunes and most of those players. So, all right, guys, great episode for you today. Right off the heels of Patrick Terry, we have the CEO of P. Terry's, Todd Curver on the show, and there's some really great stuff that came from this episode. We're going to talk about what the growth mindset looks like, uh, why you shouldn't be worried about sharing information, having a holistic brand-driven approach to running your business, how to build trust among your leadership team, letting people move around within your company, wearing different hats, getting different experience in different roles, and then uh, three questions to ask yourself if you're transitioning into a new job or whether or not it's time to transition into a new job. We cover the three steps to getting your brand back on track if it's lost its way. And then we also talk about uh, the importance of getting your team to buy into this change of uh, the awkward process of formalizing the informal and then the benefits of keeping it simple, clean and unique. And then lastly, we dive into some great tools out there like e-sites and how you can use these tools in searching for your next location, diving into the data and the demographics behind all that great tool. Uh, and it's a great episode. So here it is. No further ado. I got your man, Todd Curver. It's a good one. And with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Todd Curver. My man, Todd, are you feeling unstoppable today? 100%. Yes. I cannot wait to dive into your story. We actually just published Patrick's episode yesterday. And by the time our guests or our listeners will be listening to this on Thursday, so it's going to be back to back. So nice. I'm really excited for this. Let me give the listeners an idea of who we're talking to. Todd Curver is the recent announced CEO of Austin, Texas hamburger chain, P. Terry's. Prior to his current role, Todd served Lark Burger as CEO and Taco Cabana as chief brand officer and as chief operations officer. And we're going back even further before Taco Cabana, Todd spent 14 years at Whataburger where he ended his tenure as VP of Marketing and Innovation. So we got a, a, a big swinger sitting in at the table today. I'm sure we're going to learn a ton from you, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? You know, I the last few gigs I've been at, um, it's always been about growth, mm. you know, and so I'm always, I've been in the growth mindset yeah. for the last boy, six to eight years of my career. Um, and that's been the main focus of my role is how do you lead a growth brand forward? Okay. So I would say that, you know, the mantra that's been top of mind over those last several years for me has been, you only grow as fast as you can replicate the magic. Ooh, you only grow as fast as you can replicate the magic. I love that. And I'm curious, what what is growth to you? Because I think growth is kind of a relative term, like because growth means different things to different people. So, what is growth to you? Right for me, you know, obvious. There's the obvious level of growth, which is just putting more locations in the ground, right? Opening more locations yep. um, at a very surface level. But for me, it quickly becomes about growth in the shape of creating opportunity. And that's what's really exciting about growth inside of an organization for the culture and the people of the company is when you're in growth mode, it creates all sorts of new opportunities for people because new positions are opening up all the time. New positions are being created as the infrastructure has to evolve with the growth and scaling of the brand. And so to for me, it's super important to create that sense of excitement around the culture that hey, you're on the ground floor of something that's getting ready to take off. 
and there's going to be a lot of opportunity in front of you. So as we go on this journey together, think about what excites you. Where do you want to take your career? Because you're in one of those rare moments where inside this company, all sorts of new things are going to be popping up and coming available to you. Mm. And as somebody on the ground floor of the adventure, you're going to have first crack at those opportunities before we look elsewhere. So where does it make sense to start sharing your story? So you're a Dallas native, right? You yep, to, yep. Was it Georgia Tech or Georgia, Georgia University? University of Georgia. University yeah. of Georgia. Yep. What were you studying? So I took a very <laughs> abnormal path to get here. Uh, so I grew up in Dallas, went away to University of Georgia, actually got a degree. My degree is a Bachelor of Arts in Romance Languages. Okay. Major in Italian, minor in Spanish. <laughs> Where was your mind? Go figure. <laughs> I will tell you the, the quick story of how I got to that major was two things. Uh, I was really struggling to figure out what I wanted to do, mm. where I wanted to focus my academics. And uh, in a conversation with my mother, best thing she ever said to me during that time, midway through college, trying to pick a major, she said, you know what? Stop overthinking this. Do what you love. Mm. Do what excites you. And I've always loved foreign language. I've always sort of had a knack for it. Um, and I always sort of treated it up until that time. I kind of treated it as a side hobby and never like a major focal point. Yeah. And when she said that, it just jarred me. And so I, w- I had been taking Spanish my whole life growing up in Texas. Um, and so I thought, I'm going to add a second language and just see how it goes. And so I went into Italian 101. I got out of the class, came back, called my mom. And I said, I found my major. And she said, what did you decide on? And I said, I'm going romance languages, but I'm going major in Italian. And she said, what brought that on? I said, because I just went to Italian 101. There were 17 people in the class. It was me and 16 girls. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, so I'm reflecting back at this major. Has it, how has it served you to this day? I'm curious about that. You know, fundamentally... Wait. Aside from being able to talk to girls. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny is the unexpected consequence of choosing that major is a, you relearn when you're taking a second or third language, you relearn how to communicate at a mm. fundamental level all over again. So you learn really good practices around communication skills. Um, that you sort of take for granted when you're learning your primary language. You're growing up as a kid. You're not thinking about it. It just sort of happens, right, organically. But when you're as an adult, even a young adult, and you're taking a second or third language, there's a lot more intention behind learning how to communicate properly. And so communication skills, uh, that has probably been the biggest impact of that major on me of just learning to be a good written and oral communicator, to set clear vision, clear strategy, oper- you know, communicate with transparency. I learned a lot of my core tenets around communication from those paint, language classes. Paint that picture for me of, of communicating with transparency and clarity. And what does that look like? Give me an example of how you're, you're leveraging that in your business as a C, or not your business, but the, the greater P. Terry's business, yeah. right? Uh, how are you leveraging that skill? You know, I have worked in the past. I've worked for companies that were very guarded with their with sharing information, um, and I always questioned why. You know, we're we're in the food and drink right. business. You know, we're not solving world peace here, and we're not we're in the entertainment business when it really gets down to it. Um, and so, why would we be so guarded? What are we worried is going to get out there? If you believe in your competitive advantage. People can't come after you. They can't replicate your DNA. 
that separated you since the day you opened your doors. In this case, you know, what Patrick created 15 years ago. And so I always look at it as I would prefer to take the risk of oversharing mm. information so everybody in the company yeah. knows exactly where we're going, how we're getting there, and why is that the direction we're headed. Yes, I love it. I and, love it. And knowing that information may travel outside the company, but to me, again, it comes back to we believe in what we're doing, and we're, we believe more, more wholly in the idea that we don't think anyone can copy us. You know, it's funny you mentioned this idea of uh, people, specifically in the restaurant industry, being so guarded with their information because they think that it's the way they do things and how they do things that really makes them successful. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's all about execution. I mean, people can know exactly how you do everything, but are they going to be able to execute it with the same passion that you do, with the same transparency and nearness to your heart that you exactly. do? Exactly. And, and um, I'm actually super excited that people are less guarded with their information because it makes my job much easier what I can just show up and ask for the information. Right. And I'm sure we're going to get some of that, that, that good, good stuff that you're going to share with us today. But, um, what were you thinking when I shared that? Um, you know, what's interesting. I thought about when I went to Larkburger and one of the great things that happened when I went up to Denver to take that role was it, it only reaffirmed that idea of open communication and sharing in my mind when I went up there, because it blew my mind how how many CEOs of other restaurant companies in the Denver area were gracious enough to reach out to me, welcome me to the community, but also spark a, a friendship and a friendship in which we would all get together on occasion and just share ideas, share struggles, share solutions. Even though some of us were direct competitors, some of us were indirect competitors, but at the same time, we we were all chasing something a little different, right? Mm. And our brands all represented something a little different to the consumer. So to me, that's why I always felt like that was a safe place, yeah. no matter what. And there's strength in numbers. And Absolutely. I think that why do you? It's lonely at the top, but you don't have to be at the top if you're willing to get out there and talk to other leaders at the top, right? You Absolutely. can be, come together. I think a lot of people, when they're new to the industry, they look at these people who come together and they think to themselves, "Well, that's a click," and I don't know what it takes to be a part of that click, but. I'm, I'm not a part of the clique. And unless you're part of the clique, you're not going to be, it, it's all BS because it is. all you got to do is ask, you yep. know, all you got to do is reach out and you'd be surprised at how willing those people are to, to let you in because that's kind of how it all started in the first place by letting people in. Right? Yep. Yep. And you know, there's a, there's something that happens too, as, as you sort of age and mature professionally where over time you don't quite know where it happens, but at least for me personally, there, you hit a point where you sort of drop all the bravado and ego. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. <laughs> and it's quite frankly, not very fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you start being more of an open book um, and being more receptive to just, hey, let's exchange ideas. Let's yeah. learn from each other. I love it. I love it, man. So you, I think it was 95, you joined Whataburger. Yep. Uh, you, you're like four years out of college. Yep. At what capacity did you come on board at Whataburger with your, uh, your came, degree in uh, literature? Or was <laughs> romance uh, languages. Romance language. <laughs> well, I had the the good fortune of right when I got out of school, uh, I had been working a summer job during college for a company in Dallas, uh, and I was sort of a do-it-all kind of gopher for a marketing department. Okay. And so that's where I learned the ropes of marketing and branding. Um, and that really spoke to me and I really enjoyed the work. It felt natural to me. I felt like I had good instincts for it. Um, and so when I got out of college and got back to Dallas to start working, 
um, I actually got into the ad agency business first. Um, so I worked for a couple of different ad agencies, uh, before landing with Whataburger and moving down to Corpus Christi where they were headquartered at the time. So when you came on board with Whataburger, were you in, were you in the, the, the kitchens, the restaurants, or were you working in the corporate office? I was in the corporate office, gotcha. uh, in the marketing department. So I came on as a, as a marketing manager okay. for them uh, based off of that ad agency background. Um, so took the opportunity to kind of jump to the client side, get out of the ad agency business. Um, and that, you know, the folks at Whataburger could not have been kinder and better to me in terms of giving me so much opportunity to grow and explore the different areas of business. Yeah. Uh, um, and to where I, you know, I actually, at one point I left marketing for a while, went into operations, training, uh, communications, created the communications group within the company for the first time as we were kind of growing and that need became, okay. became very important. Um, so they just, they let me explore a lot of new areas of business that helped my learning and my growth as a professional. Where, where was Whataburger in 1995 when you joined their team? Like what, what point had they had scaled to at that point? Uh, we were at that time we were right around just over 300 locations. Okay. Um, primarily in Texas, Obviously, um, the, the company had it started in San Antonio, right? Started in Corpus Corpus. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So the family, the founding families from Corpus Christi, the company was from Corpus Christi. Gotcha. And then right at the end of my tenure is when, uh, we, as the executive team at that time decided it was the right time, uh, to relocate the headquarters to, to San Antonio gotcha. with, with the growth that was going on. Okay. So what were the biggest lessons or was there a key mentor at Whataburger who just immediately comes to your mind and what did they teach you? Um, you know, probably my, my big mentor at the time back then was a gentleman by the name of Tim Taft. Okay. Um, and Tim has been a lifelong restaurateur. Um, and he was, he was sort of the guy right above me every step of the way at Whataburger. When I came on, he hired me on as the marketing manager when he was VP of marketing. Okay. And then he sort of grew up the chain and took over as CEO in the early 2000s uh, of Whataburger. And as that, as he kind of went up the ranks, I just followed him. What did he teach you? Um, you know, he was the one that first taught me about, you know, when you're with a private company and you're, you have the good fortune of being in total control and you can ignore the outside influences. He's the one that really taught me that mantra of, you know, only grow as fast as you can replicate the magic. I think that's what we were saying before. I was trying to get you to say only grow as As fast fast as as you can replicate replicate the magic. magic. Yeah. So what what do you, what does that look like? Is, Is it, it's really just a, it's a, it's shorthand for just how to grow responsibly, you know, to make sure to always keep in mind, there's a reason we became successful in the first place. And there's a DNA attached to that success that makes us different, that makes us unlike anybody else on the block. Um, and to not lose sight of that. Um, because to me, as a lot of companies grow, they enter what I call the sea of sameness. Mm. You start to lose your differentiation uh, for the sake of rapid growth. And then you pick your head up years down the road and you're wondering, how what the happened? heck did we get here? Yeah. What ha- we used to be something special. Um, and you know, the worst thing, I think Patrick alludes to this on occasion too, and he's very mindful of it. The worst thing a customer can ever say about you is remember when they used to be good. God, that's just the death. Yeah. You know, I think that was his fear. His biggest fear is that, that sentence coming out of people's mouths, right? Absolutely. Um, so what is magic? 
to me, the magic is those, all those little things that differentiate your brand, that separate you from the pack. Can you give me some further examples? Um, you know, when it comes to, you know, for example, for P. Terry's on the product side, the fact that Patrick bothered to pursue, go through the pain and effort of pursuing an all natural menu. Mm. Um, you know, that's not easy to do, especially when, stuff, especially right? when he did it back in 2005, when that was just not the norm and he yeah. had to search high and low for the suppliers for those ingredients. Yeah. So choosing, you know, sort of the, the best way or the right way over the easy way, uh, to me, that's where the magic comes from. And the magic also inside the company, all those little cultural moments that, again, that Patrick and Kathy created with the interest-free loan program and some of those things that really separate the birthday cake program that other companies would never go to the trouble of doing. Yeah. Because, again, it's hard. It's not yeah. easy. It's it's like the the energy that goes into your French fry process right. is the magic, right? It's right. the hard stuff. It's all the stuff that makes scaling hard. Right. right? And guess what? There's no ROI on a birthday cake program. <laughs> There's no ROI on an interest-free loan program. Yeah. It's just, but you got to just believe it's the right thing to do. And to just get a little, give a little more context uh, from your listeners. If you guys are listening to this and you haven't listened to Patrick Terry's episode, he was literally the, the uh, interview just before this one. So go back to Monday's episode. I believe it was episode six, 690. 91. Maybe you want to get caught up, but some of the things that they do at, at P Terry's is they, they have a zero, uh, percent interest loan program. Yeah. Sometimes you have up to $40,000 of loans outstanding. out. Yep. Outstanding. Yeah. Well, Not we necessarily will... to one person, but throughout the company. Right. And it's really just a hand up for employees when they face a, a moment where you're just getting pinched, you know, yeah. you, your car breaks down or, uh, you have an unexpected medical expense. You just, when life hits you upside the head, right. you're not ready for it. This is a way the company can kind of get you back on your feet quickly without that stress of how, where am I going to get the money? Right. And then there's your Christmas bonus where you get what? $10 Ten bucks per month, per of, month. of tenure at the and company. It, and it compounds. So if you've been with the company for 15 years, like many, we got of, a lot of those. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a big holiday bonus. Yeah. Uh, and then the last one is like you mentioned the, the birthday cakes. I yep. mean, you have somebody full time on staff and all they do is cook birthday cakes for every one of your how many employees today at least uh around 700 yeah so i mean wow i mean that that is a testament to the magic yep. right there that is magic that's hard to scale maybe yep. we'll get into that later um because i want to learn more about tim and what tim taught you but what else did, so taught tim taught you that um oh, what is the saying again i wrote it down only grow as fast as you can replicate, uh, replicate the magic, the magic. Yeah. what else did tim teach you um and just you know it's about the approach to business, especially when you're in a leader, leadership position is – and you see this particularly in the restaurant business. You find a lot of companies are ops-driven, right, or other companies are sales-driven or marketing-driven. And he really taught me that holistic perspective of being what he referred to as brand-driven. And when you're brand-driven, it means you're pushing the whole thing forward equally. There is no one discipline or one segment of the company – that takes precedence over another. It is truly about everybody plays an equal and important role. The business would not survive if you pulled any of the legs out from under the stool. Um, and so to prioritize or to suggest a, one discipline is more important than another is just not, it's not accurate. Yeah. And, but so many cultures, you see that take shape based on where the company started or the background of the person who founded or is currently running the company, 
those disciplines can kind of take the front seat sometimes. And so to me, and, and what I learned from Tim back in those days is the importance of keeping everything on an equal, equally important uh, playing field and pushing the whole thing forward together. Mm. Meaning, you know, I have, we have a brand filter. It's actually on our wall here uh, that I put up when I, in my early days of starting here. And it's, again, it's just that holistic, well-rounded approach to decision-making for the brand and the business. I love it. And it's all about, it's got to answer yes to all these questions. Is it right for the brand? Is it right for our guest? Is it right for our culture? And is it the fiscally responsible thing to do? I'll try to take a picture of that before I leave. It's being blocked by a camera in a case right now. And I'm, it's beyond where I'm pointing. Uh, but we'll take a, a photo of that and have it in the video. So if you guys are listening to this and you want to see the video, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Those videos are rolling out now. Uh, just a little tiny plug there. But back to this whole holistic effect, uh, the brand-driven approach. What checks and balances do you put in place to make sure you're staying brand driven where you're thinking holistically how do you not get because you said some people will tend to lean into the direction that they're inclined to say if i'm the ceo but i have a background in branding and marketing i tend to put my emphasis on that how do you avoid becoming narrow-minded like that? i think the way i personally have sort of i guess the way i would put words to it is over time as i started getting into general management coo ceo roles uh over the last few brands i've i've been able to work with I've developed this idea in my head of uh, the CEO role to me is not a singular leadership role. I view it more as you're a, a shepherd of the brand and the business, which means it's not about me making the ultimate decision. It's about me harnessing the right people, getting the right people around the table to make the best holistically considered decision uh, f- for what's best for the business from a 360 degree view. So, you know, every Tuesday morning, we sit in this room, our leadership team, and it's the head of operations, it's our CFO, it's Patrick, our founder, and it's our head of development. So right there, you've got growth, operations, finance, founder. Yeah, vision, right? Values. (laughs) Vision, values, culture. And so to me, that small group, and they always say, you know, the best leadership teams are always four to six people, no more than that. Uh, because that's a small enough group where you can have really authentic, honest conversation, yes. challenge each other without there being any grandstanding in front of a larger group, mm. right? Um, and so we get down to very real discussions and debates over what is best for this brand and this business. Um, and so to me, that is a huge part of our weekly exercise to make sure we are holistically looking at the business and nobody's vote outweighs another, even Patrick's and Patrick will be the first one to tell you that, um, that we truly, everybody's got an equal weight to their vote because each of their perspectives is so valuable. So do, do you guys write these rules that you're sharing with me down that everybody has the same way? Like how do you, is it just unspoken? Like how do you consistently show up with everybody having equal amount of weight at the table? Um, well, one is the brand filter that we hang yeah. on the wall, yeah. uh, because those five questions Checks represent those five perspectives. Yeah. I love it. Um, and then, you know, it's funny, I'm actually, we're in the process here, uh, as I'm wrapping up my first year on the ground here, uh, we're, we're putting into place a, a new evolved, uh, performance review program of how we actually sit down with each employee and review them and set and agree on and align on objectives for the coming year. So we set company objectives and then we talk to every employee one-on-one and talk about what are you going to do to contribute to us hitting those objectives? 
how does your world line up and support us chasing those objectives and, and accomplishing them? Um, and so in that review process, the review document that we use, the assessment form, um, it goes through those key perspectives and that, that sense of balance and equal weighting. Interesting. I might be interested to break that down even further as we progress yeah. through the interview. Uh, but back to your time at Whataburger, I mean, this, this, 14 years, that's more than half of your career in the industry at Whataburger. Uh, you mentioned Tim. He gave you some great lessons. Any other lessons that you pull from your time at Whataburger? Maybe other mentors that kind of drop some nuggets on you that you can share with us before moving to your next experience? Um, I don't know if it was nuggets. Uh, maybe more takeaways uh, for me um, that were not spoken by one individual, but things I learned through that experience. One, we had an incredible leadership team. And I don't mean that intellectually speaking. Yes, that to me is like a given. Of course, if you're an executive at a large company, you're pretty damn Can't smart. Be a knucklehead. You're pretty good at what you do, right? <laughs> yeah. That's how you got to the seat. Yeah. But to me, it became the culture of that leadership team. The fact that we had this innate sense of trust in one another, um, that we had each other's back in this sort of unspoken way, that created a lot of power um, because the entire company saw how close we were as a group, not only as professionals, but actually as friends that would hang out together outside of work and really talk about the business, you know, what can we do to make this thing better? What can we do to get it more high-performing? What can we do to improve the culture? Um, that just was conversation for us. And so there was just, it, it taught me, my takeaway from that experience was the, just the importance of building a team that actually clicks culturally, um, personality wise, you know, we want to be different cause we bring different perspectives. So again, I'm, I, I don't want to create that sense of sameness in terms of thought process. So we want the diversity of thought, but the fact that it's important that the personalities really jive together. Yeah. So you, you identified the, uh, the culture of this leadership being really centered around trust and your ability to click. How do you, you create trust? How do you do build trust? Great question. In fact, we've been going through the, our leadership team here. Um, I actually brought in an outside consultant, um, sort of an executive coach type, for lack of a better term. Um, and she's worked with us over the last six months um, where we've had a couple of offsites where we just go lock ourselves away for a day um, and just, A, go through some exercises where we really learn who each other is at the core. What drives us? What, what's our decision filters? What's our thought process on how we look at the world, look at business? Because uh, we do all come at it differently. And so it's important to first understand those differences. And then secondly, to respect those differences because they all are additive to how we drive the business forward um, and, and to appreciate those differences. And so to me, it's really just about spending the time and the energy. Again, you can't quantify or put an ROI on the, you know, the top five people in the company disappearing for a full day. <laughs> yeah. And the truth is, is it's our differences that make us stronger. It's our differences that make the tribe well-rounded. Absolutely. Right? So we need to respect those differences. Um, and there's actually a great book out there called uh, from Stephen R. Covey, the son of Stephen Covey, Stephen Covey, the, the highly, the seven habits of highly yep. effective people. His yeah. son wrote this, the speed of trust, yeah. which is a really interesting book. Uh, and in that book, he talks about like the Russian culture of being kind of cold and very direct in, you know, like they don't mess around. Like they say what's on their mind yep. and they believe that that's because during like after the cold war, I don't, I'm not a historian, but there was a period within the culture of Russia that it, 
we didn't have time to kind of like banter and beat around the bush and like not hurt your feelings because we needed to be op- open and I guess what I'm saying is like the power of being open and honest and very direct is one way to build that trust is just saying like this is what we need to accomplish, you know, and like th- this is the, s- the situation. This is how I feel. It might hurt your feelings, but we're going to get there faster because I'm being honest and transparent with you. And I, th- I think a lot of companies, honestly, they underestimate the value of ensuring that leadership teams actually like each other mm. and enjoy each other because you can find the expertise all day long. That yeah. is the easiest part, right? But finding a group of people that jive and get along really well, because the more friendly we are, think about your close friends, your spouse, your close friends, the people you're closest to are the people you're most honest with. Right. It's just the human condition. Mm. And if you're at odds with somebody, our human nature is to just shut it down, shut them off, shut them out. Mm. And that kills a leadership team, which in turn obviously would damage the business. Absolutely. And so we shouldn't underestimate the value of assembling a group of people at the table that actually get along really well and enjoy hanging out together Yeah. beyond just the intellectual exercise of running the business. I love it, man. I love it. Uh, I can't believe we're already past 25, I think near 30 minutes of recording time in this episode. It's going by so fast. I'm loving it. Uh, Anything else that we need to know about your time, your early days at Whataburger, any key lessons, any key takeaways before we take our first break? I think one last one would just be, again, what Whataburger taught me and I try to carry forward and I would encourage other companies and leaders to consider, let the people within your organization move around within the organization. Don't pigeonhole an accountant just because they're an accountant. Mm. Uh, I'll give you a great example um, that's actually happened just in the last couple of days. I'm getting ready to hire a uh, a marketing manager, the first marketing manager for the business. The business has never had a marketing professional. Uh, obviously, I'm kind of wearing the CMO hat as, a, uh, as just one of the many hats we all wear, right, in a smaller company environment like this. Um, but in terms of having somebody solely dedicated to the marketing of the business on an everyday basis... Um, it's time as we're scaling and getting ready for growth to bring that person in. And I was, you know, hiring a lot of, excuse me, interviewing and, and reviewing a lot of candidates from the outside because um, didn't really consider or think we had that marketing DNA inside the company here. And uh, our accountant on our finance team, uh, Angela, came forward to me last week and said, I know this sounds crazy, but I want to put my hat in the ring for the marketing job. I was like, Really? And she, so it just sort of opened her up to kind of share with me what speaks to her. You know, she went to school, did the whole accounting thing to get a job. But in terms of what her love is and what speaks to her in business, she sort of has fallen in love with the marketing discipline. And so I am working with Millie, our CFO, on a transition plan to allow Angela to move into that marketing role. Because I said, you know what? You have the attitude, the personality, the demeanor for marketing. I mean, she's great. She's got great energy. She will be an amazing brand ambassador for us. And I said, I can teach you all the other stuff, uh, pretty quickly. So what's the benefit of letting your people move around? Like how, how do you plan on benefiting from letting, what say your name for me one more time? Angela, Angela move from accounting to marketing. How's that going to create a win-win for you and her? Because to me, companies win when their employees are at their happiest. Mm. And if this is what gets her going in the day, mm. I'm going to get so much out of her. Yeah. The business is going to win if she shows up every morning excited as hell to be here. Yeah. And excited about what she gets to do to touch the business. And it's it's vertical growth for her, right? Absolutely. And what happens if you hire an accountant 
and they don't work out, well, you're still going to have somebody on staff that knows how to do the job, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. another benefit, too. Yeah. I don't know if that was playing around the back of your mind, but I mean, I love what you're sharing with us, and I think that's a great uh, opportunity right there to take our break, to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back. You're crushing it. It's the entrepreneurial myth, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's the idea that when you open your own restaurant, life is going to get easy because you get to do exactly what it is that you love, whether that's front of house or back of house. And then reality kicks in, right? You've got to do all this other stuff that comes with owning a business like taxes, HR, payroll, really boring stuff. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, HR actually easy for small business. And if you want to add on 401k or health benefits, it's a breeze. Those old school clunky payroll providers just were not built for the modern small business. Not to mention, you, you've got to compete with the big guys. But how do you compete with the big guys when you don't have big guy bucks? Well, with Gusto. That's how. Get back to doing what it is you love and let Gusto handle the rest. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you'll get your first three months free when you run your first payroll. That's Gusto.com slash unstoppable. Again, Gusto.com slash unstoppable. We're back. And you spent 14 years with Whataburger. What made you want to leave? What, what was going on? What, what, what was uh, the, in, the inner dialogue looking like at this time in your life? Yep. 14 years is a long time. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to do more than just marketing. Okay. Um, and wanted to branch out more into general management. Um, and at that time, you know, the Waterburger team from an executive standpoint was very well set, great group of people. So I, you know, I could look out at that group and go, okay, well, nobody's going anywhere anytime soon. So if I'm going to find more expanded opportunity for my professional growth, um, I was going to have to go outside the company. And so I felt like, you know what, this was, I had a hell of a ride, uh, with a great group of people at a outstanding brand. And it was like, okay, I am super thankful for that. And it's now time to go, as I like to call it, it's time to go get uncomfortable again. Yeah. Um, and so I've, I've always had a filter, a three question filter in my head that I use for my own personal, uh, career decisions. And I share this with other folks too. And I, you know, I have conversations where they're struggling to make a, a decision on their growth and where they should go with their career. And I always say, if I can answer yes to these three questions that I'm good where I am. And it is this simple one, Am I contributing to the success of the company? Do I feel like I am touching the business in a way that I'm contributing at a high level? Two, am I fairly compensated for what I do? And three, am I constantly learning and growing? And if I ever say no to one of those, it's time for me to rethink things. And the beauty is I can honestly stay every step of the way. The first two questions have always been a yes. The only time I've made a change in my career was for that third question of just an opportunity to learn and grow and do something completely different. And that's why I say get uncomfortable. Yeah. And that that's where growth happens in that state of discomfort. And Absolutely. if you're comfortable, you're not growing. Right. And you got to push yourself or else, I mean, the world's constantly changing yep. and you have to stay sharp. You got to be adding skill sets to yourself constantly. So you got to put yourself in those situations where you're going to force yourself to learn those new things. Right. Exactly. And so I found myself kind of starting to get a little bit on autopilot. And that's yeah. where I was like, ah, oh, it's time. Yeah. And, and you know what? When you hit that place, it's also good for the company that you move on. Because at that time, Whataburger deserves somebody who's super excited yeah. and amped up to walk in every day and maybe 
tackle something in a different way that I haven't thought about. Well, you moving out also creates opportunity. Like you said, like there was an opportunity for you because the people above you were kind of like, you know, like in their positions and they weren't going anywhere. So that means that the people below you weren't going anywhere either. Right. Exactly. So I love that mentality. Um, so what was it about taco cabana? I mean, with 14 years of experience at Whataburger climbing the, the corporate ladder, Tons of experience. You could have gone to a lot of places. I'm sure you looked at a lot of places. So what was it about Taco Cabana? You know, and I did. I entertained a lot of options inside, you know, staying in San Antonio or maybe moving somewhere else in Texas or moving to another part of the country. Yeah. All those types of opportunities sort of came my way and I was trying to gauge them and, and really think about it. Um, and at that time, it really came down to one guiding factor, and it was my family. Mm. Um, you know, family first for me, uh, just like I know it is for Patrick. Uh, and at that time, my kids were all in school, sort of in their formative years, and I just I didn't want to leave San Antonio at that time. We were in a really good spot uh, as a family. Everybody was really happy and doing well, and I didn't want to be the guy that pulled the rug out from everyone, yeah. you know? Um, and so that was really a leading factor for my decision. And then, so I I knew I wanted to stay in San Antonio if I could at all. Um, and so when Taco Cabana came calling, um, it was a great opportunity for me. Uh, I like Whataburger. I grew up with the Taco Cabana brand being a Texan and it was always a interesting, cool, different brand in my mind. And at that time, it was a brand that had sort of lost its way a little bit and was, you know, in search of its identity. Um, And with my sort of brand marketing background, um, I felt like I was a good fit uh, to go in there. So when I entered the company, I came in as the, the number two position in their structure as chief brand officer. And then two years into the gig, had the the good fortune and the opportunity to move into the COO role, which is the lead role uh, in that company uh, because we were part of a multi-brand environment that uh, reported into a parent company. Okay. So I'm curious. You said uh, it, the, the company lost its way. Uh, what does that look like? What do you mean by that when you say it lost its way? Um, you know, over the prior couple of decades, quite frankly, um, the company had changed hands. So what was, when, when did Taco Cabana come into the scene? Like, well, I know there's a lot, it's been around late, for a long time. Late 70s. Yeah. Okay. Started, started in San Antonio in the late seventies in the shadows of Trinity university. Okay. Um, and so this is a, you know, pretty old legacy brand, been around yeah. a while kicking, um, and really just all over Texas, uh, just with a couple of locations outside of in New Mexico and Albuquerque at the time, uh, but primarily a Texas concept. Um, and through all these changes in ownership along the way, and then eventually going public, um, they just, they lost that magic. Yeah. Um, things got kind of watered down. They fell into that sea of sameness where they were competing in the fast Mexican category in a way that, uh, really didn't honor what Taco Cabana had originally stood for. Mm. Um, and so for me, it was, how do you come in? It's back to that exercise we talked about earlier of how do you come in and understand what is the DNA at the core that's somehow gotten covered up and mucked up over the years that just needs to get that stripped away and and sort of reveal that original DNA again that made it special to begin with. And then how do you do that in a way that's compelling to today's consumer on today's landscape of competition? So I think this is something that might be singing a little near and dear to some of our listeners out there that maybe they they came and joined a team that might have lost its way or maybe 
maybe they've been a part of it and if they're being honest with themselves, they know the brand isn't what it was when they joined X many years ago. So what is, what's the secret to finding your way again? If you could narrow it down to like, like maybe three things, like what are the things, the things that you did with Taco Cabana to, to get back on course to what the way was? Uh, you know, something I started when I came into Taco Cabana as chief brand officer, yeah. I'm responsible for trying to figure out that compelling brand identity to get yeah. it back on track, right? Um, and one of the things I did um, is I created, and I've done this at every brand I've been to since, um, including P. Terry's, is I said, I'm going to spend the first 90 days on what I call a listening tour. And all I did was go around to all the restaurants, all the mid-tier field management, all the folks in the home office, the, all the key vendors that have been on the journey with the company for years, if not decades. So everybody that was super close to the brand in some capacity, I just went and spent one-on-one time with them. And you recorded these, didn't yeah, you? Because I, I saw a couple of these videos online. Yeah. Did you record? Is, I mean, did you do it once separately, one-on-one, and then if it was magical, you put a camera in front of the second pretty, time? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So when I had these moments that I'm like, oh my God, I got to like capture that because that just so eloquently captured what we're trying to go for, yeah. what we're trying to be and where we used to live and how we lost our way. Um, and it's so much better than, you know, for that to come from veterans of the company than the, the new guy that just walked in the door who thinks yeah. he knows it all. Yeah. Right. So, 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 so step- that's, that's where I became really, that's where I evolved into this notion of, Oh, I'm really just a brand shepherd. That's my job. It's just to reveal these moments, reveal yeah. these opportunities. Don't, you don't have to be the only brain or the biggest brain in the room. Right. So I'm going to say the step number one to finding your way if you've lost your way is first going on a listening tour. Yeah. What would you say step number two is, is it, I think you kind of just said it's really boiling down the learnings. What are the major themes that emerged from, for me, those God tens of, I mean, I probably spoke to 50, 60 people in some of these situations like with taco cabana. Um, and I tried to get a nice variety of, uh, of representation from around the company, from frontline, who's operating the cash register, to general managers, to field management, to home office folks from every discipline. Because uh, it's remarkable when you have, the, you know, I'd ask everyone the same set of questions. Um, and it's amazing how the themes always bubble to the top very yeah, quickly. Yeah. It's always four or five things, yeah. always. So, and 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 people express it in different ways. So you're you're seeing it in the form of regret or disappointment yeah. or God. Remember the good old days. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. well, what does the good old days look like? You mm-hmm. know, what made that so exciting? What made the brand so uh, dynamic at that time? And just to dig into that, and then that all gets played back. And then I turn that around, working with design team, you know, ad agency, if that's the situation, um, to take all that input and produce a brand guidebook for the brand. Mm. And that's what I've, what I've done everywhere I've gone, really. So um, number one, listening tour. Number yep. two, boil it down. And then once you've boiled it down and you've, you've created this brand guide, uh, what's the next thing you do? Then you take that brand guide and reflect it back out to the culture. So we shot brand videos. You know, I've done that with founders before. You know, Taco Cabana the founding family had not been near the business in over 20 years when I got there. They were kind of kicked to the curb through all those ownership changes and going public. Mm. Um, And so one of the things I did the first year I was there is 
I went and found the founding family. They were still in San Antonio. Um, and I created a relationship with them and guess what? They loved it. They welcomed it. Yeah, I I bet. I mean, so basically what I'm hearing from you is you just got close to what the original brand was and whatever it was, wherever that magic, whatever that magic was, you went out, you found it and you injected it back in. You reminded the greater company of what it was all about in the first place. I love this man. I really do. Uh, Any other big lessons? I mean, you spent six years uh, with Taco Cabana. Mm -hmm. How many locations were there when you came on board? Uh, that was more, since that was more of a restore the shine to the brand, it wasn't really a growth exercise as much. Um, so we were around 160 when I came in, I think 172 when I left. So what were your biggest challenges in this, in this, the uh, biggest challenge was, so doing all that brand work, right. And really understanding what this brand looks like, feels like, acts like, talks like, um, to restore that magic. And then from there, there was a lot of significant initiatives that fell out of that. The biggest one, the most challenging one being, I put a three-year program in place where we went and remodeled all 172 locations over the course of a three-year period. Um, And it was a significant, significant exercise. We spent anywhere from $100,000 to $200,000 per location uh, over the course of a three-year period to, to really put that brand identity. How much was that? You said, sorry, around a hundred, between a hundred, depending on the state of that facility, yep. between a hundred and 200,000 on average per facility, per facility, wow. um, over 170 locations. Damn. So it was a monumental exercise. Took a lot of people to make it happen. Um, getting a lot of alignment from a lot of parties. Um, but you know, that exercise breathed new life into the brand, the culture, the customer culture, because everyone was like, all right, Taco Cabana's back. Well, the thing that's coming to mind, the word that's coming into my mind right now is pride, a sense of pride. Yes. Something to be prideful for, right? Absolutely. Um, and I think a lot of times when we try to reinvent ourselves, we put things on paper, um, but we don't inject it into the actual physical representation of what that stands for. Right. I mean, it's one thing to say, this is what we are, but does what we say, what we are match with what we actually are? What's perception. Right. Um, do you want to reflect on that a little more? Yeah, I think it's just, again, it's anytime you are building a brand or restoring a brand, it's gotta come from an authentic place. Mm. It can't be bullshit. Yeah. You know, because the customer and the employee that alarm's going to go off immediately for them. Yeah. They're going to go, yeah, they're trying too hard to be something they're not, you mm-hmm. know? And so it's really got to resonate at the core, which is why going back to that original DNA of that brand, that, that blueprint from the founder is so mission critical because no one can call BS on that. Mm. And, and so that's why I always start there. And then that becomes the foundation upon which we build this thing back. So I'm curious, um, once you, you've identified, right? Once you've found out, you know, what the right path looks like. You talk to your founder, you've written it down. How do you get people to buy in? I think that must be, it's one thing to go through the the work to say, this is who we are now, but maybe half the people that had got on, had come on board, um, don't necessarily agree with, you know, what we are now. Yeah. This is, this is probably the the hardest part of the exercise, right? Is it typically plays out where you have a third of the people are your early adopters, right? They're the ones that are super excited immediately. They see it. They're like, let's sprint that direction. Let's go, go, go. And then you got the middle half that's kind of the, I'm not sure about this. Uh, they're kind of in the wait and see mm-hmm. mode. 
Uh, I'm going to reserve judgment. I'm not sure what you guys are, are cooking up here. And then you got the other third, which is the folks that are the naysayers, right? They're like, listen, I've been here. I've survived leaders before you, and I'll probably out-survive you. <laughs> and I... I'm not sure this is the right direction kind of thing. And it just tends to always work out that way. I don't know why. Um, And guess what? You know, those third, those are the people you have the hard conversation with those, the naysayers, because they're the ones holding you back. Yeah. And we can't afford to have people creating a drag on the energy that we are driving for. And you have to make the hard decision to say, listen, this clearly is not the place for you. You don't seem like you're on board with the new direction. And guess what? That's fine. Yeah. Let us help you make a different, better decision for you personally. And we'll work with you to do that. Yeah. There's a humane way to go about this. You yeah. know, you don't have to be a jerk or be cutthroat about it. Um, but at the same time, my obligation, our obligation as leaders is you got to do what's best for the brand and the culture. And you can't let people hold you back from doing what's right and what's best and what you believe in in your heart. Yeah. And you got to remove those obstacles. I love it. I mean, so the big thing I'm hearing from you there is just remove, uh, I hate to say, I hate to call these people the cancer, uh, because maybe they're, you know, maybe they're the cure to the cancer in another brand. You know what I'm saying? Right. But for you, it's not right. You got to remove them because they're going to infiltrate the rest of the culture and you got to have like 100% buy-in if it's going to work. Right. Right. I don't believe in these are bad people. This is just wrong place, wrong time for you. (laughs) Right. And and that's fine. That's totally fine. Let's just call it what it is. And move on in a healthy way that's good for both of us. I dig it. So anything that is worth bringing to the surface uh, that we have not tapped into that's absolutely worth tapping to in respect to Taco Cabana, lessons learned, mentors that have influenced you, anything along those lines? Uh, No, I think we've covered sort of the Taco Cabana era. Nice. So you were there for six years. Um, Was it the same situation again? Did you find yourself not learning and not growing? Is that kind of why you decided to move on? That one was different because that was uh, that was more the direction the business was moving. Uh, there, like I said, Taco Cabana was one of a couple of brands in a parent company uh, structure. Mm-hmm. Okay, and at that, and it was really there was some fundamental shifts, changes happening at the parent company level. I'm not familiar with the, the parent company, but I'm assuming it's something kind of like Bloomin' Brands, right? So and, Fiesta Restaurant you, Group was the parent company over Taco Cabana gotcha. and, and Miami-based uh, Pollo Tropical, gotcha. uh, Caribbean-inspired uh, fast casual. And so these two brands, sort of Latin-inspired brands, um, were sister brands underneath the parent structure of Fiesta Restaurant Group, which was a publicly traded company okay. and still is today. Um, and so there were some changes and some things happening at the parent company level that just uh, – you know, didn't agree with me. You know, that's, it was one of those things where I'm like, eh, I'm philosophically not on the same page as where this thing is headed. I won't ask what they wanted to do, but I will ask what, what did you want to do? What did agree with you? Where did you see yourself going and why? Um, you know what? I guess I look at Taco Cabana during that time when I made that critical decision that it was time for me to move on, which was very hard because I was so, to me, it was more about the people of Taco Cabana that I was leaving that Mm. had gone to battle with me, um, that we had earned each other's trust and friendship over those years. Uh, That was the hardest part. Um, And it wasn't, a you know, it's hard to tell those people you're leaving and it's not about them, you know, and it really wasn't. It's about everything that was happening above my chair Mm. um, that I couldn't do anything about um, and that we were just not aligned. And so it was time for me to move on. but, you know, we had done so much good work. We had finished that three-year remodel program. 
uh, comp store sales were really strong. We were, you know, flowing profit beautifully. I mean, everything was sort of clicking and the misalignment was the parent company was still very focused on developing the other brand, the sister brand to a really, to a disproportionate degree. Um, and that's where I felt bad for the folks of Taco Cabana. Why do you think that was? Um, I think it was just a strategic business decision. They, you know, there's a lot of Mexican food concepts out there. Well, that's there. exactly what I was thinking. Right. From, from their perspective, when you're looking at the market, there's an overwhelming amount of Mexican Tex-Mex tacos, burritos, you, you name it. Even now, like quesadillas uh, are a big thing right. that's popping up in Dallas with Dillas. Yep. Um, but... So they Caribbean, saw, yeah, they saw the uniqueness in unique Caribbean. Selling, yeah, unique there was, selling proposition. That was like a new niche. Yeah. And so I think they saw tremendous opportunity around that that got them very excited. And so they poured a disproportionate amount of energy and and capital into that concept uh, to the detriment of Taco Cabana. I got you. And, and so it was just hard for me to go to work every day trying to carry that flag knowing uh, these folks at Taco Cabana really worked hard to get us to this great <laughs> yeah. place. They deserve to continue to get the love and, and support. Yeah. And, and it just That's wasn't totally happening rough. to a degree that I would agree with. You I know, you. they, I respect, you know, those folks get to make the decisions they feel like are right for the, the parent company. It, um, so it was just a agree to disagree kind of moment. And yeah. it was time for me to, to do something different. So where was your heart when you were exiting uh, Taco Cabana? Like what, what did your heart want? Where, what was influencing your decision with where you ended up next? So, you know, after Whataburger and Taco Cabana, two big, established, long-time legacy brands in the industry, I wanted to do something really different. Again, about getting uncomfortable, right? Mm. So I was like, I want to go a totally different direction. And there was a part of me that always, you know, I've always worked with founders, right? And that taught me and showed me it really built my respect for founders and what it takes to be an entrepreneur. My mm. God, I, I am not built like that. <laughs> I don't have, I just don't have the courage to just go it alone and create something from nothing Yeah, and believe so wholeheartedly in it that you would just lean into it with everything you have. And every founder has their struggle story from those early days. And we heard of Patrick's, you know, right. um, I just have such respect for that because I don't have that wiring. So you're not built like that. How are you built? Uh, I think I get real joy. I love working with founders. Mm. I think because it's so not like I am, you know, I could never do what Patrick does. And Patrick always says, I could never do what you've done. <laughs> and I think it's made, you know, we're a great partnership because of that, uh, because we come at it from two opposite opposing perspectives. So what is it that you do? Um, God, that's a great question. Uh, I think it's back to the brand shepherd idea. I think it's about helping brands crystallize and find their way. Um, again, all great brands that have gone into multi-unit growth, there's there's a piece of magic there, right? That led to that led to them being successful. Mm -hmm. They put them in a position where people want more locations of this thing. So you're re you're helping them reconnect with that. Yeah, uh, and I just I love you know from my marketing and branding days. I just love the exercise of how do you more deeply connect with a consumer? Okay. How do you take this beyond just a transaction of stopping in for burgers, fries, and a drink and creating a relationship between the consumer and the brand? 
to me, that's where the fun is. Um, and that's where the excitement is. And how do you rally an entire culture around that idea? And how does everybody kind of play their role to make, take this brand to that special place where it is more relationship driven than transaction driven. So it sounds like with Larks and I don't want to put words or thoughts into your, your, your mouth. Uh, it sounds like you identified somebody who was that, that brand leader who needed you uh, early on. Uh, what was it about Lark? Like where was, where was Lark? Lark For Burger? me, Lark Burger was interesting because it was a, that uncomfortable, go try a much smaller sort of startup mentality brand um, and see what you could go do with something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was going to be a whole new, different, humongous challenge. Um, and it was, I mean, I learned a lot about myself probably more than anything. I bet. It was, and it was a real struggle because the timing was such that was 2016. And that's really when, you know, the restaurant recession hit this country it was middle of 16. Uh, everything started softening. There was sort of that glut of, uh, too many restaurant seats and more seats than butts to put in. Yeah. And there's been this sort of market correction in the restaurant world since 2016. Um, and it continues today. And, and so I entered it unknowingly at a very difficult time, uh, for Larkburger for the, for a smaller concept, trying to get its footing. Um, so where was Lark? How long have they been around at this point? How long were they established? Uh, they had been around right about 10 years. Okay. Um, and they were at, two at four, or three locations, 14 locations 14 when locations. I came in. Okay. Yeah. All throughout Colorado, just Colorado. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so um, so it was an interesting brand, uh, small friends and family shareholder group that was behind it with the founder. Um, again, I got to work with the founder, uh, Chef Thomas, who is a brilliant guy, very creative, very innovative. Um, so I learned a lot from him uh, from a culinary standpoint and just how to connect with the guest um, at that very personal level. Um, and so that was a great learning experience for me. But again, that was the hardest stop for me in my career uh, because it was such uh, I got a little whiplash from going to the large the safety and comfort of large established brands yeah. to wow this is a small sort of startup not a lot of environment there. not a lot of security yeah. I mean I, that was the first time in my life I've been at the helm of something where we had to worry about are we going to make payroll mm. That is a different place to live <laughs> inside your head um, if you've never done that before. Give me two things that you're most proud of that you feel like your presence with Lark, you know, it wouldn't have happened otherwise. You know what I'm saying? Like the things that you came in, you, you identified issues. And then what were those issues and how systematically did you turn those things around without maybe giving, I, I mean, I know it gets personal, right? I mean, right. It's hard to talk about these things without revealing uh, what's going on behind the scenes that maybe people over at Lark don't want to know. But I mean, right. there's got to be some nuggets that you can share with us, some step-by-step things that you pulled away that we can dive into. I think it was where I first learned the importance of when a brand is in that place, right? I mean, when you're in that sort of 10 to 20 locations, I equate that to you're the rebellious teenager trying to learn how to be an adult, right? Mm. I mean, prior to that, when you're less than 10 units, you're still sort of in your infancy. You're, fi- yeah. you're finding your way. Yeah. You're figuring things out. To me, there's something about when you get into that 10 to 20 unit uh, range, just like we are here at P. Terry's today, um, that's where it's like, okay, you're sort of caught in this middle ground of your, I say you're the irreverent uh, teenager because you're fighting two things, right? You're, you're, you're wanting to hold on to the fun 
and that magic? spark and magic that came <laughs> from the early days yeah. of being the entrepreneur, the entrepreneurial spirit yeah. of that exercise is, is on one side of the equation. And on the other side of the equation is this striving to sort of grow up and mature and be in a position to scale in a very healthy and responsible yeah. way. And there's this sense of, if you're in the entrepreneurial spirit phase, there's a sense that that more mature phase uh, people, you know, people are fond of saying, "Oh, you're going corporate." Yeah, you're, you're, I mean, you're talking about that space, that awkward space between chaos and order. Yep. And but the thing is, there's a lot of magic to be had in chaos, and it's it's a matter of pinpointing it, what exactly, and then trying to add some type of way to capsulate. Or I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want to put words into your mouth. No, you no, I think that's it. I mean, it's it's. That's what I learned at Larkberger, and I did it through a lot of trial and error. I mean, I admittedly I stumbled a lot um, through that learning process. What and, were the uh, sorry? Uh, what were the, I, I want to get into some of the things that like what were the the trial and error? Like, what were the things that you were like? This is what I'm gonna do, and that didn't work. And then this is ended up like take us through some of that step by step stuff that you had to figure out the hard way. Um, so a critical moment. I mean, really, what you're doing in that that awkward in between space of right going. For, in this sort of teenager moment of a brand um, is you're really, you're trying to formalize the informal. You're trying to document and write down everything that makes the brand special. Cause a lot of times you go into those, you know, less than 10 unit kind of brand situation, not all of them, but a, a lot of them, it's difficult to like, okay, where's the recipe book and where's the procedures and where's the training manual. A lot of times it doesn't exist. Mm. Um, it's some stuff's here and there scattered about, and it's not well organized. It's not easy for new people coming in to find. Um, and so it's really about, like you said, going from chaos to order. And that, to me, that exercise is about formalizing the informal without losing the magic, without losing the time. magic. How yeah. do you, because when you're only a handful of units, sure, it's easy to share things by campfire yeah, and replicate that magic. But all of a sudden, when you start getting into 15, 20, 25 locations... Little echo chambers start to the form. People start to get isolated, live in their islands, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and we as leaders can't be everywhere all at the same time uh, to make sure that communication is happening. Clean. So you do, you rely more on good documentation, uh, good written down practices and video compliments to that to really bring it to life that have to speak on your behalf when you're not around. Mm. Um, and, and to get, so the trial and error example, you know, when I started to do that at Larkburger, the old regime that sort of was there in the early days and went to battle with the entrepreneurial owners and founders, um, you know, that's what they were excited to sign up for. And I, you know, I think I unknowingly, represented to them sort of the corporate guy coming in mm. right and he's going to kind of water us down and this is not going to be as fun and we're going to lose that maverick spirit uh because i'm trying to normalize this thing to some degree mm -hmm. um and so you know admittedly we lost a lot of good people mm. when that when i went through that exercise initially and that was a very difficult learning for me um, that, that I had to do a lot of soul searching on that one. Like, God, what did I do wrong? How, what, where did I misstep that these folks felt like I was taking them a direction that did not feel good. And, and so it just put more emphasis in my mind on the importance of taking the time up front to really sit with everybody and talk about 
Where are we going? What would you have done differently? Is that is that what you would have done? Would yeah. you, do you think you put more time into more one-on-one? Yeah, more one-on-one, even more just group discussions, more casual discussions mm. before decreeing anything, before making fairly significant decisions directionally for the business. Um, I knew, I don't doubt that those were the right things to do. Um, it was the way I did it. Mm. Uh, it was the style part of the, the equation. And, and so I think, yes, I would have slowed down. And that's something I've been very cautious about here, um, is to spend a lot of time just talking to everybody yeah. about the why behind what we're doing. Yeah. So you identify the one thing that you kind of wish you did differently, right? What's the one thing you're patting yourself on the back for at Lark Burger? And you spent two years just to give the, the listeners a little more uh, context. You spent from, uh, what was it? 2016 to 2019. So three years yep. with Lark Burger. What was the thing that you're most proud of? That they wouldn't have had if, if you didn't come on board. It's hard to talk big about yourself like this. Eh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I'm not, you know, honestly, that was, like I said, that was the hardest job I've ever had. Yeah. Um, so I, it's weird. I don't view it. If I had to say what was the biggest win for me, it was probably survival. Yeah. I mean, that sounds crazy, but it was just learning and surviving during that very difficult downturn okay. in the restaurant industry with a brand that just did not have I'll go and I'll go back into the difficult if you want to because I think there's a lot of in those uncomfortable difficult conversations reflection that's where my listeners will benefit the most cuz there's likely hundreds of them listening that are feeling that same thing. Yeah. So one thing you were discussing which we'll to summarize what we just covered was capturing that magic in trying to transition it into order. Um, what else was difficult? Um, the labor market at that time put an ungodly amount of strain on the business in terms of just being able to find and retain good people. Because not only was the restaurant industry taking a hit at that time and people were kind of bouncing around different concepts Colorado, Denver specifically is a highly saturated fast casual market. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of where fast casual was born when you think about Chipotle and those brands. So that was one of the hardest hit markets in the country in terms of the, the thinning or the slimming of the industry there. Um, and, and so for, to be a smaller brand in that kind of environment, it was unbelievably competitive, not only for customers, but for employees, uh, that was that was a really difficult moment. So what new tools did you add to your Swiss army knife, right? What new things, what new skills did you have to acquire in this role as CEO that you didn't have that you were forced to develop because of this hard time? I'll probably, I'll admit probably the, the biggest one in my brain, probably the biggest pivot point for me personally as a professional. And this will make sense. I think when I say this, I grew up primarily on the marketing and brand side, right? So that meant I was wired for and equipped for socially, emotionally intelligent and, and being really focused, hyper focused on the customer relationship. Mm. And so what that turned into was a weakness on the employee relationship. Ooh. It takes a lot to admit that it, it takes was, a lot of courage. It, to admit it. it was a very tough thing for me to confront. Um, and let this be my public apology to the people of Larkburger. <laughs> <laughs> so with this newfound self-awareness of that, that weakness yeah. that you've identified in yourself, uh, which is, you know what it's, and I think that there's a lot of pressure on leaders to be good at everything. 
that's just not the case. No. It's not the case, and it's unrealistic. I think there's a lot of uh, falsities in, like, you need to make yourself into this amazing, well-rounded person to be successful in life. I don't know if I march to that beat. I don't know if I buy into that, because I think what makes you successful is doing one thing really well and surrounding yourself with people who are surrounding your week. Amen. So, I mean, but you, you were still there. You still had to learn some new skills to, to increase your ability to deal with these employees, to, to build the, the, to give that attention to your employees. So what, what things did you, uh, adopt? What practices did you adopt to kind of self-correct? Uh, you know, more, more just downtime with the employees, Mm. more just creating fun, stupid, silly outings (laughs) where we could go bond and get to know each other a little more. Um, because again, back to what we originally talked about, that's what builds trust. Yes. Trust was on the tip of my tongue. I mean, that's it. To me, that is at the epicenter of what's most important to me as a leader today Mm. is building trust. I love it. Because to me, everything falls out of that. And so that was probably the biggest learning and sort of corrective step I took back at Larkburger. It was a little bit too little too late. Yeah. um, But it was certainly something that I logged in my brain that I will not let happen again. All right. So I think we can now talk about P. Terry's. We kind of been squeezing it in here and there about what's going on here at P. Terry's. But uh, after three years with Larkburger, uh, you decide to take this great opportunity at P. Terry's. I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. So, you know, it was late, uh, late 18, uh, Patrick called and, um, actually headhunter on behalf of Patrick called to start and just to feel me out as a potential candidate for the CEO role that Patrick was looking to fill. And, you know, the second they said P Terry's, I was like, I don't even know where you're calling, but the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, uh, I mean, you were in Texas in 2005, so you're familiar with the brand. You yeah. know what's going on. Yeah. So when I was with Whataburger is when P. Terry's started. Mm. And um, I, at that time, I was VP of Marketing and, and uh, Innovation. And so during those early 2000s is when the sort of better burger segment started burgeoning. Yeah. Um, and that, you know that's when the Smash Burgers and the Five Guys and the and more locally, the P. Terry's and the Mighty Fines uh, started coming to the surface, right? And and this sort of better for you take on the classic burger joint. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, as the guy responsible for brand and consumer <laughs> insights, I was keeping a very close eye imagine. on what that might mean to a Whataburger mm-hmm. uh, in that case. And, and so I studied the category intensely and monitored it intensely many trips up to Austin to see what these guys were doing. And the thing that stuck with me back in those days that I carried forward and why I was so eager to take the call when, when Patrick's uh, group came calling, um, was those initial impressions of P Terry's. I just kept looking at going, God, this thing, this is a brand new brand with a couple of locations at that time. And they just seem to be doing everything the right way. What is the right way? Um, the right way is being, A, knowing who you are and being unapologetic about about who you are. Uh, even knowing that that's flying in the face of the norms out there, which Patrick was absolutely doing, right? Going for all natural uh, products at the price point he was offering them at. Nobody was crazy enough to do that except Patrick. (laughs) Um, And I just, again, I just have such respect for that. Um, And so to see that, and then the follow-up to that is, you know, knowing who you are and pursuing it unapologetically, but also pursuing it so thoughtfully 
that to me, you know, not leaving anything to chance, not saying, oh, well, that's not that important. He clearly sweat every detail of this thing from the menu selection, ingredient selection, uh, building design, branding colors, logo, uh, employee culture, every touch point. I was like, wow, wow, and wow. Um, and especially to see that it's such a new concept that was not corporate backed, right? It wasn't born out of a boardroom of a bunch of 20 year restaurant veterans. This is an entrepreneur going it alone and doing the best he can. And Patrick clearly had great instincts, you know, for the business. What were the best instincts he had that if you could identify the, the three things that he just did instinctually that were spot on? Super simple menu, Mm. you know, five things on the menu in the face of a time when all these brands had huge menus. Um, so keeping it really simple, keeping the concept remarkably clean, uh, from a simplicity standpoint, but also just a visual presentation standpoint. Um, the, the thoughtfulness around deciding Googie architecture was a great way for him to differentiate while capturing what his vision for the brand was. Um, and so just, you know, to me, always having in mind, like, because this is what I try to do, uh, and I see it in a lot of the decisions he's made over the years, is to, you know, when the when the category is zigging, you zag. Mm. I mean, this is the reason this Stand sounds... Stand out. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's funny. I, people who know me well know I am not a fan of restaurant conferences. I don't like them. I'm very obvious about this. I feel like you're reading my mind right now. (laughs) Because all that does is preach sameness. Yeah. You know, we all, what do we say? 500 of us are going to go gather in a ballroom for a couple of days, hear all the same insights, all the same trends, and walk away with probably all the same reactions. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I was asked to speak at, and I hope I'm not losing my my invitation by talking about this publicly. <laughs> I was asked to speak at the uh, bar and uh, or nightclub bar. See, I don't even pay attention to the <laughs> But I was asked to speak, and um, I'm in the back of my mind. I'm like, I don't know if I'm the person – you, you want to speak at these things because I'm going to say all this stuff that's controversial. I'm going to say all this stuff that's like going to turn. I, I I am chaos. I'm the thing that is like yeah. order and like I, I like to stir things up, you know. So I'm right there with you. I, I mean, there's I'm, a couple of conferences I do enjoy going to, but I will say I go to it probably for different reasons than others go. Yeah, I go to learn what everybody's talking about so I can figure out how to go a different direction than all of them. <laughs> exactly. Right? I'm like, okay, what's the opposite I can do? You're all, all going this? over there. Like I'm going to pull a fast yeah. one and go over here. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, but I just want to, I just want to identify those three things that, that uh, Patrick, that you identified, he was doing right instinctually. Right. And again, those are, he, he kept it simple. He kept it clean and he was uniquely, he had a unique identify identification. So simple, clean and a unique identification, yep. a unique selling proposition perhaps. Yeah. Um, and that was just the image that they were doing. Um, what are the benefits of simple replication consistency? I would say it's, it's and to add on to that. You can do what it is you do even better because you have more bandwidth to focus on that one thing. Exactly. Play deep. Don't play broad. Yeah. That's impact, not reach. Exactly. exactly. And, and I'll be frank. Like I love the, the P Terry's brand because they're everything that I believe a brand should be. Um, they didn't put their energy out. They, even when it was come, came to scaling, they said, where can we put our, where can we go deeper? Where can we be closer to our people? And, and 
that 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 uh, centri- uh, what's it called? Uh, centrific or circle or, or circle centrifugal centri- force? Centrifugal? Yeah. No, not centrifugal force. <laughs> but there's a way to scale where it's uh, centri- centrific centrific circles. I don't know. I'm kicking myself right now for not knowing what it's called. But it's a hyper focus, 15 locations within a 20 mile radius. You know, or 20 mile uh, yeah. diameter. Yeah. Um. What is what does that do for a brand? A you can be very hands-on, right? Yeah. The brand is right there. It's There's no restaurant more than 15 minutes away. Yeah. So you can jump in a car and go put your eyes and hands on it. Yeah. Um, no matter, whatever the business is requiring. Um, plus, you're, you're, you're catering. You got 15 locations, but really, you're only speaking to one market. Um, you're not having to try to figure out market differences, right. regional differences. Be everything to that one market and not something to a few people in every market. And right? by being in that one market, you can position yourself and communicate yourself and portray yourself as uber local, mm. right? I mean, the giving back program that Patrick created, uh, where we give back, you know, we have these four days a year, once a quarter, where we give back all the proceeds to a, a named charity that Patrick and Kathy select uh, here in Austin. That That kind of those moments, you know, endear you to a market. Mm. That's what creates that hometown love. That's the magic. That's the magic. Yeah. That's the magic. So what has you, because your, your goal, part of the reason why you came here was to, I mean, and Patrick identified that they believe they have something special yep. uh, and they want more people to experience that special thing. How are you going to, what's your plan? What's your strategy to be able to, to hang on to this magic that the, uh, the Terriers have done so well at creating. Yep. How are you going to hang on to that and to bring it to different places? So, you know, it's all about the infrastructure and the people and the culture. Every, I've, you know, I've done countless interviews since coming to Austin, just people curious as to where this P Terry's thing is going, mm-hmm. right. And how it's going to do it. And in every interview I get asked, what's your number one challenge? And immediately it's culture. It's hanging on to that culture. It's easy to go find pieces of dirt. It's easy to go build restaurants. Um, it's easy to staff them. But are you staffing it with the right people who get what you're all about and have internalized that and can share and reflect back that passion that yeah. we have? That is the number one challenge on the table. And to me, the number one things that that break a concept as it's scaling, um, that's how you lose your way. Have you ever thought that or do you ever consider that that growth isn't necessarily moving further out laterally, but how can you go deeper into Austin? How can you be, how can you make those, those ties that, that are interwoven within this community even stronger? Absolutely. I mean, to me, growth, when we talk about growth, it's not just about putting new locations in the ground. Mm -hmm. It's how do we actually keep improving and deepening the success of the current 16 locations that are here, you know, 15 in Austin, one in San Marcos. Um, how do we keep improving there? And then being opportunistic in Austin as the market continues to grow, where do we have gaps that we could serve new neighborhoods that are starting to fill in? Yeah. And um, I mean, what a time for yeah. something like that. There's so much opportunity. Now I will say, you know, it's interesting because people are like, well, then why do you feel this need to grow outside of Austin to put more locations down? Well, what I've quickly learned through a lot of research, uh, through some tools I've brought into play here at P Terry's, um, This brand, you know, most fast food, they put a three-mile radius around each location. 
and protect that three mile radius. You know, you don't want to cannibalize yourself, mm-hmm. right? So you paint that three mile radius around a location and you hold that as sacred and you don't put a, a restaurant inside that circle. Um, and that's sort of how you protect yourself. With P. Terry's, this concept, for some reason, draws from a wider radius than I've ever seen before for fast food. Our typical radius from the research we've done, our audience comes uh, comfortably from a five mile radius. Oh, easy. I mean, I did it uh, just after editing Patrick's episode. I needed a P. Terry's burger after episode. And I, I, I drove at least 20 minutes just because I wanted right. to get that. I mean, I drove past at least two in and out burgers on my way there. You, there know you know go. what I'm saying? And so that poses a challenge. Uh, I love that because that draw from a greater radius is what is that's a big part of our success on a per unit location. It's the reason our average sales volumes are so high um, and are some of the best in class out there because we have a we draw from a larger audience that's willing to travel a little further. Well, the challenge that benefit creates is I can only put so many locations here before I start cannibalizing myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've got to look outside of our current uh, marketplace and we've got to look at new neighborhoods. So how do you do that responsibly? Well, I brought on a tool, a site selection tool. It's a web-based platform, uh, where they build out the engine. Can around. you share that with us? Yeah. So it's, uh, the company's called eSite. Okay. Um, you know, there's a few, I've worked with a few different companies that play in that, that vertical of site selection analysis, yeah. uh, for retail brands. And there's a lot of things I liked about this one. I've not worked with eSight before, but I, I really felt like they were a good fit for P. Terry's. Uh, a, they were probably as reasonable as you could get from a cost standpoint for all the vibrant data that it gives you. Um, it's very, um, it's web-based and you get to drive. You know, they hand over the keys to you That's once they've cool. built the machine out so you can sit there and play all day uh, with dropping pins on a map and seeing what the demographics, psychographics, co-tenants look like around that site to see if it's a good fit for you. And the the most important part of the exercise they do on the front end when they're building out the engine, so to speak, uh, on this thing to make it really smart for you is they go back into your, they attach an API to your POS system uh, at every location, current location. And they basically mine all the credit card data for the last year from all those locations. So they literally are looking at millions of transactions. Okay. Uh, they ended up looking at 1.3 million unique visitors to P. Terry's locations wow. over the course of a year. And we're able to then go correlate that to census data um, and lifestyle data, segmentation data. And so now we know... These 13 lifestyle segments out of the 70-something, excuse me, locations, uh, the, the, out of the 70-something segments that are out there that are, the U.S. gets split into, we know these 13 are the, the folks most likely to frequent a P. Terry's because our values would align and our interests would so align. So now you're going to look to see where those people are. So all you're doing is saying, okay, that's our... That's your avatar. That's it. And so now where do those people reside in clusters that it makes sense to drop a P. Terry's down in Portland, Oregon? (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I feel what you're saying. Um, And, uh, you know, it's 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 interesting. I love what you guys have done. I'm looking at the time now. I can't believe we're already over an hour and 20 minutes of recording time. I want to respect your time. The only thing we haven't discussed up to this point is Taco Ranch. Um, I didn't even get to talk to Patrick about Taco Ranch. And my gut tells me and and I'm just taking a swing here. I could be way off is that when they started Taco Ranch, What maybe they had identified that they've reached market saturation 
in Austin, but they didn't want to go outside of Austin. So they said, what else can we put our energy into that doesn't directly compete with burgers that we can have that same level of um, culture and, I don't know, impact within Austin that's not cannibalizing what we already have. Was that what was going on there or um, what was the opportunity for talking? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to speak for Patrick, obviously, yeah. um, but I think there's a couple of things in play there for, for him and Kathy. One, they obviously know the Austin market incredibly yeah. well and have demonstrated success here in creating a concept that speaks to Austinites. Um, and then two, they obviously have created a model in P. Terry's that works right um and so they i think there was a wonderment around hey we've been doing this thing and building out austin for the last 12 or 13 years at that time when yeah they, when they were creating taco ranch um and to say hey what if you know can we take this model and apply quick mexican to it so the model being simple or i'll just identify the things you did um s- simple clean and like what was the other one uh unique identifying yeah yeah yeah. yep um yeah and i think so you know applying some of the same mantras around all natural ingredients Mm. and keeping the menu simple um and having that unique identity um so i think they smartly applied all those uh all those dynamics to this concept and the creation of it um so I, I think that was a big part of it in terms of where we go from here. Um, there's no plans at this time to expand. You know, we've got the one location uh, right now. I thought there might have been two. There was a, two. Oh, okay. uh, we actually just closed the second location because uh, it's just off the UT campus gotcha. on Martin Luther King. And so it's a prime piece of real estate. And, you know, Patrick brought me here to double down on P. Terry's. Yeah. That's the big bet he's yeah. making, right? And that's the big bet we're all making. Mm. And so he and I spent months looking at that location going, because uh, there was a part of me, there was a part of both of us. It was like, that would make for a really good P. Terry's <laughs> and just add to our stable yeah. as we get into growth mode. Um, that's sort of a safer growth play, right? Right in the heart of our hometown, right. serving the, the UT campus, yeah. um, that they're all very excited about us coming there. Is it Googie? Uh, it will be okay. <laughs> <laughs> when we get done with it. Uh, so that is currently under remodel right now and we'll open later in the spring, uh, reopen later in the spring as a P Terry's. I love it. Um, so that'll be one of our seven new locations this year. Todd, you've been great. I've loved this conversation. Is there anything that you were hoping we would discuss? Anything that you think needs to be, just needs to be discussed before we move to the speed route? Um, no, I think the only, the last thing I would offer, uh, that we really didn't touch on sort of to bring it full circle of, you know, working with people you really like mm. on top of, yes, you may drive from a business perspective, uh, professionally, but people you generally enjoy spending time with and sort of seeing eye to eye on a lot of things philosophically. Um, I have found that in spades here with P Terry's and it was a big reason I, I made the decision to come here, um, is, uh, you know, Patrick's like an older brother to me. I mean, our vibe together has just been easy and authentic and from moment one on the phone when I was back in Denver. He said the same thing about you. Maybe you heard that during the recording or maybe that was off the recording. He said, those I don't things know. About you, yeah. But it's, you should, you'd be happy to hear he said the same things about yeah, you. Yeah. It was just, it was almost eerie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's what got me excited to be like, let's do this. And then when I came to visit here during that courtship phase um, and meeting everyone here, I mean, I 
we're generally all good friends, you know, and we go out for beers together and we go to lunch together as a group. And, um, that just makes coming to work every day so much better and so much more enjoyable. I love it. And gets everybody excited, you know, to like, let's go do this together. This is going to be fun. It. This is great. So this is one question I'm asking all my guests and the, the mission statement is to inspire, empower and transform the industry. Um, how have you transformed? Who are you today? Who's the Todd today versus the Todd you were 25 years ago getting started in this industry? Um, so we've spoken to some of this, but to sort of encapsulize it, one, I am way more employee-centric now versus customer-centric. I'm employee first in my it. mentality and understand now in the later years of my career that you take care of the employee, the customer will come. I love it. It's it's just that simple, honestly. Great stuff. One more quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back to bust out a speed, a quick speed round, a true speed round. We'll try to wrap this up before an hour and 30 minutes. <laughs> I'm sure you felt it before, right? That pressure, that intense pressure to have your restaurant website on point. But you should have that pressure. You should feel this way because your restaurant website is so important. It is your first impression and it represents your entire brand. But here's the thing, you're not a web developer, you're a restaurant owner, so how can you be held to these standards? Well, with BentoBox, that's how. BentoBox empowers you to own your presence, profit, and guest relations, all with full support, integration, and analytics. And here's something that's really great about BentoBox is that it prioritizes website accessibility. So with BentoBox, you can get a certified accessible restaurant website that follows ADA guidelines and supports your business because this is how you show your people you care. Beyond that, BentoBox websites drive 70% more traffic. They see seven times more conversions and get five times return on investment. What else can I say? Well, how about over 5,000 restaurants in all 50 states and around the world are using this platform with its suite of tools. Head over to getbento.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, you'll save 50% off your setup. Again, that's getbento, G-E-T-B-E-N-T-O.com slash unstoppable. Imagine if processing invoices was as easy as snapping a photo with your smartphone. Oh my gosh, that'd be nice. Well, with Margin Edge, it is that easy. You snap a photo of the invoice and Margin Edge takes it from there. Every line item in every handwritten note is captured. Margin Edge then integrates with your POS so each day you know everything you bought and everything you sold. With Margin Edge, you get a rolling P&L with drill down capabilities and it flows effortlessly to your accounting system of choice. That's pretty nice. So what does this mean to you? It means you can run your restaurant without the massive paperwork nightmare. It means getting your team back to creating memorable experiences for your guests. It means having your purchase and sales data in one place immediately for effective and rapid decision making. So if we have your attention, go to me.marginedge.com slash unstoppable. And because you are restaurant unstoppable listeners, you can enjoy 50% off your first year. Go to me.marginedge.com slash unstoppable. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Uh, I think it's all about connecting with people. Spending the time to connect with people on a deep level beyond just the day-to-day -day transactional level. What is your biggest weakness? 
Oh boy. Uh, my biggest weakness is probably, boy, that's a tough one. Uh, I, you know what? I would say the finance side of the business, quite yeah. honestly, I've always leaned on a really strong CFO mm. to be that counterbalance to me. What is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? I want to know that they've done their homework and they're, they're knowledgeable and passionate about the brand. If they can't tell me, play back for me what this brand makes it special, what's great about it, what gets them excited, then I'm questioning their, uh, you know, what their intention is. I love it. And what is your biggest challenge today? How are you overcoming it? Maintaining the culture as we grow. And how are you overcoming it? I'll just communicate and over-communicate. Take the time to really talk about where we're going, how we're getting there, and how we're going to do this together. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. So this is a core value, a way to be, a way to act. Assume positive intent. What is a positive intent? Meaning, you know, especially when you get into the chaos of the business, right? When things are really, when we're scaling, we're opening restaurants, rapid fire, and it, times can get stressful, right? Mm-hmm. And people can get kind of frayed at the edges. Uh, to be mindful of when we are interacting with each other and somebody's coming at you with a question, we always assume positive intent. They're coming with the best intentions, regardless of their temperament, their yep. tone. They're after an answer. They need help with something. I love it. They might be in a mood. <laughs> it's yeah. not great because they're stressing, uh, but it's not personal toward you. Yeah. And there, we should assume positive intent. You're reminding me of uh, Anise Kavanaugh, and she's got this book, Contagious Culture. And it's all about that energy. Uh, she talks a lot about that uh, in that book. I'll share it in the show notes. Uh, what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is something that's common with the, within the four walls of your business, but not common throughout the industry. I don't know if this answers the question, but I am a huge proponent of calmness. Mm. I preach calm every day beautiful, because that's when we can be at our smartest and our most thoughtful where we're going to make good decisions for the brand. I love it. Beautiful. What is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant owner or operator? You know, I, I've read this, I read this book a couple of times because as I've gone into new roles and it's called the first 90 days and I cannot remember the author's. Sorry, pardon me, but you can Google it first 90 days. It comes right up. Um, and it's really the first 90 days uh, you're on the ground as a leader. And that book is actually what taught me about the listening tour idea. Ooh. And uh, this is episode 692. I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes if you don't want to go looking for it. Uh, and the next question I have for you is what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Uh, I would say, especially as you're growing or in a larger brand environment, get out from behind your desk, Mm. go talk to people, go spend time, get out from behind a computer, get off an email and go connect with people. I love it. What is one service you've outsourced to in the past? Uh, When I say service, I'm talking about a person. Uh, For example, you said you're not good with the accounting. Maybe you might outsource to a CFO, Uh, somebody that you can refer to somebody else in the industry. Who's one person that comes to mind? Well, I would say, uh, well, as a company, an outsourced company to help maybe replace or uh, you know take the place of a person that you might hire internally. Uh, I mentioned eSite earlier mm-hmm. for site selection. You know, typically that's a real estate professional yeah. that sits on your payroll. Um, you can get a lot more bang for the buck with that tool 
uh, if you just spend a little time with it to help you make really because to me selecting sites is the most expensive decision you make in the business you're talking about millions of dollars on the line every time you pick a site and that tool has been a tremendous service to me so maybe this is double dipping but the next question is what is one technology you've uh (laughs) that one that one okay we'll we'll let you go with that one for both uh and this is the last question it's a doozy are you ready for it yes let's do it so if you got the news you'd be leaving this world tomorrow all the memories of you your work in your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity Oh, and for Jesus. your legacy, what would those three <laughs> things be? This is a deep one. This is a heavy hitter. What do you got for me? Wow. Um, this has been a theme today, but, you know, take the time to connect with people. One. Pick the right way over the easy way. Two. Be passionate about what you're doing or get out. I've loved this conversation and uh, something just came back into my mind when I had Patrick on the show last week, a couple weeks ago, I asked him that technology question and he mentioned that the tablets you guys are using have really helped with speeding up the line, getting, cause you guys are uh, counter service in mm-hmm. fast food, primarily fast food or window service. Yep. Uh, and you have people go outside and you're taking orders from the cars, not just at the window, but outside. What is that tool? He said he couldn't think of it. Oh, it's just a tablet. It's an extension. It's an extension (laughs) of our, uh, our POS platform Uh, CRS, which is, uh, they're, they're the rep or distributor for the systems called Brink. Got you. Yep. Beautiful. So this is just the tablet extension of the Brink POS system. All right. That was the, I I promised my listeners I would follow up on that and that's checked off. So now we can start to wrap things up and I wrap up every chat by having my guests call somebody out. So who's somebody you respect and admire when I asked Patrick this question, he said, you, who's that person for you? Who do you think I should get on the show? Like you served us today. I I think a great guest for you would be James Park. James Park. He's the CEO of Garbanzos. Uh, He's based in Denver and he was one of the first guys that reached out to me when I moved to Denver for Larkburger. Just an incredibly good, dynamic leader. Uh, he's got a great growth story going with Garbanzo. Um, his energy is contagious, uh, and he's a good friend. So that's James Park from Garbanzo. Look out. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you on the show. And how can we connect with you? Uh, maybe we've listened to Patrick's episode and your episode. We're in the Austin area. Maybe we want to be in the Austin area, and we're looking for an opportunity. What's the best way to connect? Todd at pterries.com. Beautiful. And this is episode 692. Head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 692. And we'll try to have the video from this episode up and ready to roll over there. So if you're listening to this and you want to watch this sucker, do me a favor, head over to YouTube or go to the show notes. I'll have a link to the YouTube channel. And even if YouTube's not your thing, subscribe anyway, so I can sell sponsorships. It will really help me out. Um, with that said, thank you so much, Todd. Uh, there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. It was fun. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Cheers. Well, I told you it was going to be a good one and I was not lying. Todd Curver, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story, sharing your perspective, your values, your knowledge. 
I loved this conversation. I think the big takeaways for me in today's chat, what really stood out with me or for me was this idea of not holding on to your information, not withholding your information. Really, it's those who are the most generous with their information and sharing what they know with others in their market that glom on to each other, that come together and grow as a result collectively. And I just love that mentality. I think Todd did a great job of it explaining how that works. I think the other great thing that came from today's conversation is this idea of thinking holistically when it comes to our business. And when you think holistically, one way to do that is to remind yourself that you know there is no one part that's greater than the sum of the other parts. It takes every part of your business running smoothly to be successful and to let everybody who runs those departments in your biz- in your business have a voice. Everybody's voice is equal. And then you can have these these filters, right? For Todd, it's is it the is it right for the brand? Is it right for uh the guest? Is it right for the culture and is it fiscally responsible? I mean, we need these filters to be putting our business through uh to be checking ourselves to make sure we're making the right decisions and then giving everybody a voice and recognizing that everybody's voice matters. I love that mentality. That I think there was some really great advice today around um the three steps to getting back on track if your brand has lost its way. Those ways, doing a listening tour, boiling it down, and then reflecting back to your culture and your team what you've learned through this tour. So great stuff today. Um, Really just so much value packed into today's conversation. Thank you, Todd Cleaver, and to the P. Terry's team for letting me come in and uh, make an example of them. They're doing great stuff here in Austin, Texas. Uh, and guys, like always, I need to remind you, please reach out to me, Eric at restaurantstoppable.com. Tell me who I need to talk to. Tell me how I can best serve you. Please sign up for my Facebook page and subscribe to that YouTube channel right now. If you go into your player and you just scroll down, I'll link to those at the top to make it super easy for you trying to build this community. And then lastly, keep those five-star reviews on iTunes and Stitcher Radio coming. And thank you in advance if you leave one. All right, that's it for today. Thank you for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.